Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Uh, in an ideal world, uh, this would have been Wimbledon. We've said this many times in the past three months. In an ideal world, this would have been Monte Carlo or uh, Rome. But, you know, this is uh, the reality and everybody's safety uh, comes first. Uh, tough times you're living in. Uh, at the same time, we have to produce some content uh, just to honor the championships. Uh, instead of discussing real tennis, uh, uh, I planned to do a nostalgia dive down uh, with a return guest who doesn't really need an introduction. I know this is a cliche, but in this case, really, Steve Flink does not need any introduction when we are talking tennis and Wimbledon. So on that note, let me bring Steve back to the show. Hey, Steve, how are you? Akib, it's great to be with you. Thank you very much. No, no, the honor's all mine. So, yeah, the agenda is pretty uh, loose. We can go in many different directions. But uh, uh, if this was uh, an active Wimbledon, how many years would it have been for you covering the championship? Wow. You know, I just was thinking about that as you did the introduction. I've been to all of them as a reporter from 77 through last year. So that's 43. And then I did nine before that combined as a fan and a sort of reporter in training from 65 to 73. So since 65, I've only missed the tournament three times. Wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, history is on your side. My little stat is from 1980. Seven onwards. I've never missed a live final on TV. So that's my mini stat. <laughs> no, that's, that's impressive in its own right. Yeah, I mean. Apologize for that. No, no, but uh, that, that's uh, two different worlds. But, but yeah. So I, I wanted to, you know, the, the, this conversation has so many contexts. We can talk big three. Everybody's talking about that. It's not like, you know, you cannot add anything more. But I wanted to just use your. Uh, knowledge and you know knowledge bank and talk about some of those other names from the past which uh, paved the path for you know the future generations and uh, uh, we can start with Bjorn Borg's run I mean that's again a champion who uh, doesn't need much of an introduction what are your early memories of his uh, Wimbledon run I mean is there anything uh, the way he played was it like a big surprise when he won Wimbledon because he was playing from baseline and he yeah. was sweet with two-hand backhand. So just shed some light there, his playing style, uh, before his, uh, you know, his run started. Was he a force to be reckoned with on grass? Nobody thought so going into the first of his triumphant years in 76. But then he won the tournament without losing a set. He crushed Nastassi in the finals. And we still thought, well, it was a great run, but he's not really a grass court player. That was how we felt at the time. But of course, where he changed our minds permanently was the following year in 77, beating Gary Elitis in that epic semifinal, a five-set semifinal, followed by a five-set final with Connors. And he withstood a great comeback from Connors in the final when Jimmy was down 4-11 in the fifth and got it all the way back to 4-all before Bjorn closed him out. And that's when we began to see him starting to adapt his game. He started really beefing up his first serve. He attacked a lot more. He learned to do some serving and volleying, mixing that in. And he just would come in down the middle with his sliced backhand. So he did things that you never would have seen from him on clay, where he was just, uh, you know, a, a backboard from the backcourt. Uh, this was a very different style that he, he that evolved in Bjorn. And, of course, he took it all the way through uh, winning again in 78. And, and he crushed Connors then. And he beat Roscoe Tanner in five sets in 79. And, Ended the five-year sequence by beating John McEnroe in one of the greatest matches of all time, of course, which featured that 18-16 tiebreak that he lost in the fourth set before 
recovering to win it in five. It was a spectacular run, Saqib. Just, just amazing. And again, uh, you just put in context, like he started serving walling a little bit. So the men who proceeded to win him in the open era, I mean, Jan Code, Codes and uh, uh, Arthur Ashe and uh, some of the Aussies. So how was his style compared to their? Was, was it like just a total different game that was being played when he started winning compared to his predecessors? I would say so. Kodesh is a slight exception. He was also known as a, a magnificent clay court player, and he'd won the French twice, and he ended up getting the two U.S. Open finals on grass and winning this boycott Wimbledon of 73. Yan didn't have to, didn't really change too much. He, you know, he did come in more. Yes, he came in more, but he was still more predominantly a clay court player just trying to transfer to the grass. With so the others that you mentioned, the Aussies and Arthur Ashe, they were classic servant volleyers. And the grass in those days was much quicker than it is today. So it was an interesting transitional time with Bjorn. But I just remember Jack Kramer, who was such an astute analyst of the game, you know, who thought he would never win Wimbledon. And then he, he felt after that first year that was going to be his last. And Jack's view was shared by so many authorities. It was, it was astonishing what Bjorn did. And three years, 78, 9, and, and 80, he won both the French and, and Wimbledon back-to-back, which was a, was a great accomplishment, again, because the surface change in those days was, was more substantial. Oh, that, that's a ridiculous stat. I even tweeted that uh, uh, the week of Queens, which is like, you know, two weeks ago, and there was a stretch when he didn't play. I think in 77 he wasn't allowed. Otherwise, he, who knows, he would have definitely done the double four years in a row, and then until McEnroe beat him at Wimbledon, he would have the rare distinction of playing both finals. I think four or five years in a row. That's just such a such a mean feat. I mean, uh, the you know not enough can be said about that. So we'll take uh, another dive into Borg. But let me ask you about the other men or the other men who didn't win. Uh, so Richard, who was supposed to be in the podcast today with us, uh, but we had technical issues. Uh, when he came in the podcast a few years ago, he talked about that how Lou Hood may be the greatest player he's ever seen, and even the great Rod Laver mentioned. Luhor as the supreme talent. So my question is a little covering a little more territory. So among the other players who did not win, like uh, uh, Ken Rosewall or Ilina Stasi, who, who would be in your book uh, that the biggest uh, champion of that era who did not win Wimbledon? Oh, I think you said it in Rosewall because he got to four finals, 20 years apart, 54 and 56 in the amateur era in 70 and 74 in the open tennis era, losing the closest call he had was to Newcomb in 70, took it into a fifth set, but he got crushed 6-1 in the fifth. But Rosewell was so worthy of it. He was such a great all-surface player, and his game was just so... It's such an immaculately produced ground game, and he and he learned to... When he turned pro, he became much better on, on the serve and volley himself, and he developed one of the great backhand volleys of all time to go along with his magical backhand ground strokes. So I would single Rosewall out. And I think it's, it's a shame looking back historically that he didn't manage to just pull off one Wimbledon. He was so deserving of it. But a quick comment on Lou Hold that you mentioned, and I want to offer just a slightly different point of view from Richard and Rod. And I know many people share their, their, their uh, opinion of Lou. No doubt. I didn't, I didn't see Lou in his prime. I've seen film. I'm convinced enough of what he could do on given days but I don't think he had the same great qualities at majors. I, I mean, uh, there were times that Tony Traber told me that Lou was one of those guys that on, a, on one day you, you, might des- he, you might destroy him, the next day he might destroy you. 
day in and day out. I don't think he was of the caliber, in my view, looking at his record of a Gonzalez or or a Sampras or a Laver or, you know, the great champions like Roger and Novak and Rafa today. That's just my opinion. I don't doubt that if you put him out there on a given day, one given afternoon at his very best, that he could have competed with everybody. But I'm a little bit critical of it. I just feel like he problems and that he didn't play at the at the high level consistently for over long span that the other great champions did. Look at Rod winning two Grand Slams. I mean, I just don't think Lou's body held up well enough or that his form necessarily held up well enough. But that's not to say that on that is that at his very best, he wasn't capable of competing with anyone in the history of the game. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's definitely much, uh, you know, beyond my years. I know those names and, uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe, maybe we definitely have to bring Richard back and maybe we can do a deeper dive into Lou Hood and some of the great Aussies because that will be a fun conversation and you both can drive it and I'll just listen. Sure. Because, <laughs> uh, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I have the, I hold them in the highest regards and I respect the fact that the Labors and Roosevelt's and John Newcomb's all have uh, hold him in this lofty place of self-esteem and he's he's definitely deserving of it in the sense of that when he was in peak form he was almost unbeatable and he had every shot in the book and he could play on every surface but i do think that he he the, the record shows that there were many off days too and and, and no that, absolutely so let me ask you this i mean as a fan question so in steve flink's repertoire of analysis all the great champions do you ever side with the argument that stats don't tell the entire picture? Because there's a lot of argument, you know, when people have seen some great players and they say, okay, throw the stats out. This happens a lot in cricket, you know, by the way, which is a different sport I follow. And a lot of times, you know, some of the nostalgia gets in the way and they say, look, different eras, but you really cannot go just by the stats book. So do you have that kind of a belief in a tennis argument when we're talking different eras? Do you ever cite that opinion? Well, I think it's valid. I haven't necessarily cited it. I, I, I definitely look myself when I try to analyze the great players in history. I look at more than the stats. I mean, for instance, in, in analyzing Pete Sampras, his numbers have been surpassed. But does that, you know, in terms of Grand Slam titles, we thought when he had his 14 that that was going to that record would live on for a long, long time. As it turned out, it did not. The three guys have all surpassed him. Roger, 20, Rafa, 19, Novak, 17. Does but does that mean if Pete Sampras went out and they all were in their primes and he played against these guys uh, in, in conditions like Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or indoors, would that mean that he could not handle these guys? I'm, I'm not at all convinced of that. In fact, I, I, I feel the, the opposite way. So I do think you have to weigh both their records and their reputations. You have to, you have to look at everything and try to analyze just how great were they. Gonzalez has highly underrated because you know he played so long in the in the in the the pro era in professional tennis when he was sort of lost in the wilderness labor lost a lot of years in Roswell too but Gonzalez lost the most of anybody because by the time he came back in open tennis he, he was now turning 40 so he lost an awfully long time from the late 40s up till 68 so I do think we have to weigh just the way they played and and how long they lasted again that to me is a very important factor that's why i brought that up against hold but look at gonzalez when he was 40 years old 41 he's beating labor twice labor had just come off winning the grand slam and in about a six-month span gonzalez had a couple of wins over labor which i thought was 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 proof of just how 
what an enduring, enduringly great champion he was. So I, I look at all of these factors to, and try to weigh them in. No, absolutely. And this is, again, uh, it's a very endlessly fascinating, you know, way of all of us who, you know, value sports so much and we can, you know, revisit the same, you know, topic from a different angle. And, and it's great. And, and I think we should talk more about it. But uh, in today's conversation, so if the 70s clearly be, uh, belong to Borg, uh, were there matches like Fe- the one Federer had with Alejandro Faya? Uh, were there matches in Borg's run where he was tested before the final? And if there's a match that doesn't get enough mention, I know Indians talk about his match with Amrit Raj in one of the championships uh, runs. But do you recall any encounter or even the Vijay Amrit Raj encounter where Borg was yeah. pushed to the brink and that kind of uh, became a catalyst to his run that fortnight? Yeah, that was in 79. He was having these struggles after 76 when he was unstoppable every round and not losing sets. Every year there were there were there was Mark Edmondson there were there was Victor Amaya the next year there was Victor Amaya Edmondson all this going on in 77 78 five setters real escapes the VJ match is a standout because VJ was such a magnificent grass court player and ironically VJ on court one the same court where he played Yan Kodesh and he almost began the year that Yan won the title in 73 plays against Borg and has him two sets to one and it's three all of 40 in the fourth. He's so close to beating Bjorn and, and uh, Bjorn outcompeted him and won it in five. So that was again, what made his run so remarkable. It was not as if he wasn't tested and it wasn't as if the great grass court players who could try to attack him and make him uncomfortable didn't do so. But Bjorn managed to escape so many times in that five year span. And of course, as I alluded to that, we're talking here about some of the uh, the surprise tough matches he has. But then at the end of those tournaments, especially 77, where Gary Lytus had him a break up in the fifth set and eventually went down 8-6. And Connors came, made that climb back to 4 all in the fifth. And somehow he fended off those rivals who were far more comfortable and natural on grass courts than Bjorn was. Just in a, an astonishing run. Saqib, are you there? I was on mute. It happens every now and then. <laughs> so if we look at the women's era in the 70s, uh, who were uh, some of the dominant players before Navratilova arrived? Of course, Billie Jean is there. Uh, was there anyone else you would like to mention along with uh, Billie Jean King? Well, Margaret Court only won three times. She Margaret should have won Wimbledon many more times, but she tended to get very nervous at Wimbledon. For reasons I never understood, I think she was highly respected on the Wimbledon grass. Maria Buena was a great grass court player. They they had some terrific matches, most notably the 64 final. Then you mentioned Billie Jean. She started coming into her own, and that really became her favorite major. She won it six times in singles, starting in 66, 67, 68. And Billie Jean uh, you know, would, would come back again in the 70s to, to be a dominant force. You know, She won three more in the 70s. And... Uh, the last one was a route of Yvonne Gulligan. I think Billie Jean was a, was a tremendous grass court player because she was a cerebral servant volleyer is how I would label her. So to me, she was one of the great grass court players. I'd put her right up there. Steffi won seven, Billie Jean six, but I'm not sure Billie Jean was not the better grass court player. Uh, so those those are the people that I would cite uh, preceding Navratilova. Chris Everett, underrated. Won it three times, but was in 10 finals. It wasn't her best surface. And she she lost five finals to Martina and lost one to Billie Jean, one to Yvonne Gulagong. So 
she wasn't as successful there as, say, the uh, Roland Garros, where she won seven and six U.S. Opens combined on clay and hard courts. But she was underrated on grass, which is why, uh, which is demonstrated by her being in 10 finals. And uh, talking about the style, because our good friend Murta Tunga, when he listens to this, he would be looking about the transition style and different styles. So was Billie Jean the only one who was serving in walling, or was, was that the norm uh, in the women's no, field? Was- it was very much the norm. Margaret, Margaret and Maria were as well. And Virginia Wade came along eventually winning in 77. Virginia Wade was a great servant volley. No, there were quite a few in those days. But it evolved, uh, you know, starting with there were baseliners as well. Uh, but it, there were a lot of servant volleyers because, as you know, in those days, three of the four majors were played on the grass. Only the French was on clay. So the people shaped their games differently for those times. But uh, And for listeners like myself, were, were the grass course uh, com- comparable, say, in Kuyong, Wimbledon, and, uh, and for U.S. Open, or was it different grass? No, different grass. I, I think the players would. I think the players would tell you that the grass at Wimbledon, would, even though it was maybe a little uneven in in those times and quick, that that probably it was the best of the, of the three. The Forest Hills grass was not highly rated by the players. I think they felt there were too way too many uneven bounces. A beautiful stadium at Forest Hills, but maybe their grass courts and Kuyong's not as good. I probably Kuyong would be second after uh, after Wimbledon, although players talk about the court kind of sloping in in Kuyang. So they had to deal with obstacles at both Forest Hills and Kuyang that they didn't at Wimbledon because at least they were playing in, in this I- idyllic setting on the center court. And yes, the courts were quicker in those days, but I think the players would tell you predominantly that, that w- those were the best of the grass courts when you look at the th- those three majors. Sure. So... Let's talk about some of the press room moments. Uh, you covered so many of these. So in the 70s, before, before we put a wrap and start talking Mac and Martina and others, uh, was there a moment in the, or a moment or more you want to share, you know, your coverage of Wimbledon in the 70s that stands out and that's not as mainstream as you have talked about or others have talked about. So you want to share something that stands out in the 70s, uh, your coverage in association with the championships? Well, what stands out is really more just the the uh, intimacy of it all. You knew almost every other reporter. I mean, I would walk into that press room and Bud Collins obviously was the Central American reporter. And there were a few others uh, in those at, at that time, Barry Lorge and Mike Lupica stand out uh, most notably to me. And then you had a, a whole series of British reporters that were there every year, like Lance Teng- Tingay of the Daily Telegraph, Rex Bellamy of the Times and. David Gray at The Guardian, and somehow it was much, much smaller. It, it definitely was. You, we were in quite a small room back at that time. I couldn't even tell you the total number of reporters, but you knew almost everybody who walked into that room. That's what strikes me as the biggest contrast from today, where the landscape has changed so much and player, uh, uh, reporters don't necessarily cover for as many years, and so you don't get to know as many of them. You, you know a certain percentage of them, but it, there was much more intimacy in those days. And Therefore, it also kind of it also spilled over into the interview room because you didn't have, especially when I was first going in the seventies, you didn't have the the uh, such crowded uh, press conferences. So again, the, the leading reporters could get their questions out more easily. I have a personal memory that I that I would want to share. We did that. I kind of it, 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 I'm kind of smiling as I say it, but I remember when I was breaking in in 73, helping Bud Collins and also helping John Barrett, who was working in the Financial Times and 
BBC, and I would kind of wander around and do various things during the day. Wasn't full-time with the press till the next year. And I watched this match that Chris Everett played against Janet Young, where she got in a lot of trouble and was down 4-11 the third and came back. At the same time, Nastassi was losing to Sandy Mayer. It was a big shock. A lot of people thought this was going to be his title. He'd been in the finals the year before. So everybody was watching that. They weren't watching the Chris Everett match. So I came back into that press room, and I had about 20 reporters standing around me with their notepads, taking notes from my um, I, that I from the details I was giving them of the Everett match. So personally, that was a I, I remember that so fondly, and I, that kind of thing obviously would never happen in these days. But that was the world we lived in back then. And, is, and that's so true, isn't? Because tennis is so unique than other sports because there's so much action going on. So there's always an opportunity cost. You could be covering corners and could be missing out something that's happening on some other court. And I think all you know, reporters and journalists in your shoes must have gone through that. So before we wrap 70s, actually, we have a question on McEnroe. That run from the qualies, I think, was it 77 or 78 yeah. when he made the semis? Yes. Yeah, how, how unprecedented was that? And how, how much of an unknown was he even to the American media? American media knew more about him than the rest of the world. It was unprecedented. I mean, it was shocking. You know, it wasn't shocking that he got out of the qualifying. We knew about, enough about him to know he's, he had nice potential. But nobody saw him going to the penultimate round of that tournament, making the semifinals, taking a set off Jimmy Connors. It was, it was astounding. And uh, we just knew that he was a very promising player who often in the juniors, you know, he, didn't, he had a good junior record. It wasn't the greatest he would lose to the likes of Larry Gottfried, Brian's younger brother. You know, he, he had some great results, but he was a, a slightly late bloomer in that sense. And yeah, I, I just remember that was how, how astounded we all were that he got to the semis and that he really did push Connors in that semi. It was not a joke. And uh, that he took a set was, was certainly a sign of what was to come. No, absolutely. And because I, I remember watching a Wimbledon film and uh, on McEnroe and then they talk about those eight matches he played. And that's a, that's a fantastic run. It was. And, and you know, he, he didn't he had his moments. He had his moments of volatility, but it was nothing like the 1981 tournament that he won his first triumph there when he nearly got himself thrown out of the event. And some of the uh, ATP officials, I remember Butch Buckles in particular, had to go to bat for him with the Wimbledon officials behind the scenes because they were so upset by his behavior. They were ready to just throw him out of the tournament. And uh, that's a different story altogether. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. I'm just saying John in 77, although he had the hard edges, he didn't, there weren't, it wasn't quite as stormy a guy as we saw in the, in the years to come, but certainly we saw the, the brilliant potential of the player all coming to, to fruition. And, it was really the, you know, the, in many ways, that was what launched his career. Yeah. And uh, look, uh, enough can't be said about the two finals, John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg played back to back. But I want to get your view on the 82 final as well, because that's the first final, uh, I believe, uh, you know, I talk about my dad. That's when he got into Wimbledon and that was a final he watched in India. I was very young. Uh, so that final, again, is a, is a classic five-setter and Connors, you know, winning that match. What what was the hype regarding that match? McEnroe was clearly established. Jimmy Connors was, you know, still, I think, if there was a thing, big three, they were the big three along with Borg. So what was the narrative going into that match? And uh, was it the match that Borg didn't play? So oh, yeah, actually, right, Borg didn't play that year, so 82. Were they expected to meet in the finals? And uh, yes. talk, about, talk about the pre and post of that match. 
Yeah, Bjorn had walked away from the game after the U.S. Open the previous year when he lost to Macano in the final because Macano had now beaten him. Uh, you know, he had kind of discouraged John by beating him in 1981 at both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. By the end of that Open, he just thought that Macano was the better player, and he he had gone. He later thought about coming back, got in some disputes with the authorities about the number of tournaments commitments he wanted to make. Long story, but bottom line is no Borg at Wimbledon 82 and really no Borg again, except for a belated aborted comeback attempt. So, uh, yes, we did. We did expect uh, it, it was not a surprise at all, but John had had this amazing 81 season winning Wimbledon in the open and leading the U.S. to victory in the Davis Cup. So he'd had he was clearly number one in the world in 81 overtaking Borg, beating Borg in the two finals, leading the U.S. to victory in Davis Cup. So 82, he did come in as the favorite, although Jimmy had played well, you know, that first half of 82. There was the sense that maybe he was ready. But Connors had not won a major since the 78 U.S. Open. In 79, 80, and 81, he, he couldn't get over the, the, the hurdle. And he was, he was often in the semis and, you know, of these majors. He was still fighting hard, but he wasn't quite the same Connors. And he lost a match on the same court to Bjorn Borg in 81 after winning the first two sets. Jimmy didn't let that happen too often. And one of those sets was a six-love set. And so it, that was a jarring loss, even though he played some great tennis. So here he is in 82, but really priming for this event and also revamping his game in a sense, changing his service toss, moving it forward a bit, trying to serve and volley selectively. As it turned out, he didn't do it that much, but it was very, it was very uh, significant when he did and how much he tried to beef up that serve and get more on the first serve. It was definitely a, a strategic and technical change in his game. But still, the, the advantage was coming in, everybody felt Mackinac was the clear favorite. So Connors comes out there. And I remember I was lucky enough to watch that match because we shared some seats with other, other notable figures in the game, our press seats in the first couple of rows. I just happened to get seated right next to Arthur Ashe. And I knew him pretty well at that point. And he turned to me right before the players came out and he said, Connors is going to come out of come out here like a house on fire. And he was right. First few games, he was blazing. But McEnroe came back and won the first set despite a strong start from Connors. And then Connors won the next one. But in the third set, Connors served for it and served a couple of double faults. He was a couple of points away from being up two sets to one. And they lost. when he lost that set, you felt like that might cost him the match. But he came back, won the fourth in a hard-fought tiebreak and beat him 6-4 in the fifth. And toward the end, he was... Had his, he's pointing his finger up in the air, sort of one more game, one more game. It was sort of Muhammad Ali-like behavior because he could sense he was going to do it. He could sense he was going to close this out, and he did. And his last first serve hit the chalk and it took a bad bounce, and Macano didn't have a play on the return, and Connors jumped for joy. That was a really resurgent win for him. And to do it over Macano after the, the, the difficulties he'd had in 79, 80, and 81 to win another major again. And then, of course, he went on and won the U.S. Open and then won the U.S. Open the following year, too. Very underrated match. High-quality tennis against McEnroe. Two years later, he ended up losing 1-1-2 one, one, and two to McEnroe, and it was probably the masterpiece match of McEnroe's career. But this 82 final is, as you have said to me previously and as you're alluding to now, one of the really underrated gem Wimbledon finals that I've seen. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I wanted to learn more about that match, and thanks for putting it in full context here. So let me stay one more question on Jimmy Connors. 
of course, his, uh, you know, fighting spirit is legendary even to younger fans and myself because I still saw, you know, a lot of Connors, the tail end, his magical run uh, of US Open 91, his semis at Wimbledon when he beat Michal Panfosh, 1-6-1-6-1-4. But let's t- talk about the 82 Connors. So he was still a force, you have to believe, because he wins US Open two more times after that. Was he busy reinventing to battle? Uh, because he, for for some time, if if I, my memory serves correct, he was clearly the third wheel behind uh, Johnny Mack and Bjorn Borg. So what does it say about Connors, like, and the reinvention? And you talk about the ball toss and the serve. So uh, was this kind of information circulating that Connors is still a good win away? Were you guys writing him off, or what was your reaction to no, what I, he was trying to do? I think you said it. I kind I felt, and I think a lot of reporters and players felt the same way too. You know. He was always in the thick of it. He lost that heartbreaker to Borg in the 81 semi. Who's to say that he wouldn't necessarily, maybe he would have beaten Mackinac in that 81 final. I think it would have been very, very close. And then in the 80, you know, then he lost to Bjorn in the semis of the U.S. Open and straight. But he was almost always losing to his two main rivals, and, and he was always contending. And, yeah, I did have, a, I did have that sense that it, it, that he we couldn't count him out. He's turned 30 that year during the Open of 82, which he won impressively over Yvonne Lendl, who had beaten McEnroe. And Jimmy didn't get the number one ranking for the year, ironically. It went to McEnroe because at that time, the ATP didn't weight the, the Grand Slam tournaments quite as heavily as they do now. And despite him winning the two biggest tournaments in the sport, McEnroe got the ranking, which was rather strange, but that's just how it played out. But it was, in the people's minds, the experts' minds, he was the best player that year. And and it was no accident that he won the two biggest titles. And the, just the last point is, he made that change more for Wimbledon. At the Open, I think he may, played more the traditional Jimmy Connors style of all-court tennis. That was his surface, and he loved the hard courts, and he didn't really have to make any adjustments. He still served well, but I don't think he put as much emphasis on trying to serve big, bigger and win cheap points that way. I think he was more confident in his ground game because of the bounce on the hard courts at, at Flushing Meadows. So at Wimbledon, was Connors frequenting, uh, fre- how was his frequency of the net? Was he playing most of his tennis from the baseline or was he serving in walling as a whole? I know. Uh, well, you know, I charted it. I think it got a little bit overplayed. I charted it and in my stats, he came, he served in volley maybe a little under 15% of the time. But that was still surprising for enough to keep Mackinac off guard, but it wasn't just serving volleying. It was the toss and hitting the first serve a bit harder and therefore getting more out of it, getting more cheap points or setting up more short balls to come in. And he never shied away from that. So I think it was just, it was, it was a significant minor, but significant alteration in his game and his mindset. But as I say, by the open that, you know, didn't no need really for that at the open. That was especially for Wimbledon and in a lot of ways designed to help him beat Mackinac to make sure that he kept holding in the tight situations in that match. All right, so let's put a wrap on Jimmy Connors. Do you think two Wimberlands does justice to what he did in, when you look in hindsight or when you were covering, you think he could have won or he should have won more than two? You know, I've always thought he should have won a few more. Uh, you can't fall him in 84 loss because McEnroe was just, that was the greatest match he played in his entire career anywhere in the world. I think he would say that 1-1-2 one, one, and two was just spectacular tennis from his part, and Connors did not play badly. But I look back, I mean, and Arthur Ashe, of course, he lost the final Arthur Ashe in 75 that was a strategic masterpiece from Ashe, 
and Arthur caught him off guard with his with his tactics and his changes of pace and the variation and the the wide serve in the deuce court to Jimmy's back. And there are a lot of factors there. And that was a little shocking because Connors hadn't lost a set on his way to the final. And then, uh, you know, you look at 77. I, I think that's a match he probably should have won, frankly. As much as I admire Borg's fortitude in that match, Connors making that comeback in the fifth probably should have been able to pull that off. So you could say he should have won Wimbledon at least three times, probably four. That's, a, that's my view. It wasn't his best surface because I think his hard courts were his absolute best. And he didn't. The other thing we have to, to say is he didn't like he used to. I remember him saying once on the Donahue show that he really disliked the Wimbledon crowds because he felt they were sitting on their hands while at the open they were so boisterous and, and noisy. And he liked that. He responded to that. He wanted that feedback from the crowds. But at Wimbledon, he felt they were so staid and quiet that it just it didn't suit him and his psyche. So perhaps that was another factor in the in, in Jimmy Connors' slightly disappointing Wimbledon record, if you can say that winning two titles is disappointing. No, sure, definitely. He's, his resume speaks for him, for himself. And uh, uh, so the, the two other men that won 60% of the title in the 80s are John McIndoe and Boris Becker, and that's when I got into tennis. So let me ask you this question, which I'm going to ask different guests this week. Mac not winning after 84 when he put on such a show and Boris not winning after his 21st birthday, which is a bigger surprise because I thought Boris was definitely, I thought, was going to win 5-6. I remember a newspaper article in India or somewhere saying 21 and counting and he never wins after 89 and same for Mac and Rovi. Of course, we know about the famous sabbatical and then, you know, the baton was passed. But as a tennis historian, when you look back at the two, which one stands out? Are both equal, or what's your recollection? You have to. You have to. You're putting me on the spot. Do I have to answer it? Well, or you can word I, it in I, the Steve I, Flink package. I mean, don't take a side, but you know, give it no, your no, view. <laughs> no, I'm happy. I'm just kidding you because I think it's a great question. I would say, I would say it's more the Boris, the Boris settling for his third in 1989 and never getting it again is is more shocking because looking back at McEnroe. Then, of course, after 84, he ran into Kevin, a hot Kevin Curran. And then suddenly by the end of 85, he was burnt out and he took off the first months, six months of, the, of 1986. He was never quite the same player again. So retrospectively, I'm not as shocked by that. I know at that time when he won in 84, we thought he had many more in him. But for Boris to be that young, to have won it at 17 and 18 and 85 and 86, the youngest champion ever. Then to get it again in 89. I, I, it surprised me that he lost two of the three finals he played with Edward from 88, 88 to 90. Three years in a row they met, and he won only one of those, despite the fact that he had a career 25 and 10 record against Stefan. So that surprised me. And yes, it surprised me that nothing broke for him later. He probably shouldn't have lost to Steak in 91. That was, that was shocking to me. And I thought he kind of beat himself mentally. He was talking to himself, talking up a storm to himself during that match, and he never really uh, did himself justice. Steak played beautifully, but I thought that's a final that Boris should have been able to win. And when he lost to Sampras in 95, he was just losing to a better player. By then, uh, Bjorn had done, I mean, uh, 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 Boris had done better than we could have expected, and a, a, a stunning win over Agassi in the semis, but Sampras was the better grass court player by then. So, But, but looking back, it is amazing to think that 
he could win those two in his teens and get one more in 89 and then never again. And because he was so great on grass and it wasn't just the serve, but it was the, you know, the relentless serving and volleying. It was the big, the power on his returns and it was the mindset. It was the temperament. You really felt like he was made for that setting. And so again, if we're going to say it was disappointing that Jimmy Connors won only two, I think we can say it 10 times over more about, about Boris. Boris should have, was the kind of you would have thought that Boris was good for five Wimbledon titles. Yeah, you know what? That's what I mean. My my fandom specialty is in Boris Becker. I mean, I openly talk about it. I try to you know do these podcasts and stay objective. But Boris Becker is the reason you know a bunch of us in my you know in my era, my my friendly ecosystem, we all got into tennis. And his uh, his charisma was legendary. You know, as a young boy watching TV, tennis was uh, a very foreign sport. You know, big serves, aces, and yeah. And I think the 90 final, my two senses, when he was up 3-1 against Edberg, and like you mentioned, his head-to-head against Edberg, and how Becker was mentally tough coming from 15-40, love-40 deficits. Uh, as a young fan, I could not just believe what unfolded when Edberg broke him twice to take the finals at 6-4. And you, you are perfectly right. I think uh, Sampras was a better player, and Steak was on cloud nine. Everything Steak yeah, played that right. day was... Was, was on cloud nine, but that was a match that Boris should have been able to find a way to win, in my view. Uh, it, the one you mentioned against Edberg was probably the most devastating loss for Boris, a big loss in his career, I would think. After the match, he was very, quite reasonable and composed about it because he had lost the first two sets two and two. And it was, it was, it was remarkable how he came back and won the next two, three and three. Uh, but yes, when he went up 3-1 in the fifth and, and then he missed an easy volley to get yeah. the break back forehand volley a court open for the cross court volley and he bungled it and never really recovered and all credit to Edberg because it took a lot of composure and determination and and great resolve from Edberg and and some magnificent serving and volleying and returns that got him through that but it was a stunning loss for Becker to come back that way even more so than the Connors 77 comeback against Borg because he never got up the break he just got even at four all here is Becker up a break at 3-1, serving for 4-1, soaring, and and Edberg stopped him in his tracks. Absolutely. So one more minute on Becker, and I don't want to offend any Andre Agassi fans who might be listening to this podcast, but you'll probably remember this. In 92, when Becker broke Agassi in the fourth set in the quarterfinal, it started raining. And Nick Bolletary, who was Agassi's coach, said that had the match continued that day, it would have been tough for Agassi because Becker had momentum. So he comes back on Thursday because rain didn't stop. And then wins the fourth set and Agassi resume control in the fifth. Again, big hypothetical. McIndoe was still there. Ivanisevic was there. But I thought that was a very crucial point. Again, I'm acting like a Becker fanboy totally here. But I think that's one uh, tournament that stays with me. What would have happened had it, didn't, had it not rained when he broke in the fourth set to go up 4-3? Uh, very, very fair point. And, you know, tennis is very funny that way, Shakib, because... Just to make the comparison, you look at, at Nadal and Djokovic in their Australian final of 2012, the five-hour, five 53-minute match when Rafa was up 4-2 in the fifth, serving at 30-15 with an open court for the backhand pass, missed it, and Novak came back and won that match. And then you go to the French the following year in the semis, and Novak is up, serving for 5-3, up 4-3, deuce when he touched the net after hitting an overhead you know, and he ends up losing. And Rafa said after the one in Paris, you know, Novak probably, I should have probably won in Australia and Novak probably should have won here. The gist of, that's the gist of it. He may not have used the word probably, but that's what he was getting at. 
And you could say that about these Becker Agassi matches. You look at the flip side of the coin. What, what, from what you're talking about is yes, in '92, and Agassi hadn't prepared well for that Wimbledon, and he'd been crushed by Courier at the French, and he almost didn't play Wimbledon. So Boris, yes, and the rain definitely hurt. Then you go to '95, and Agassi was crushing Becker up six two four one two breaks in the second set, just killing him. And Becker, to his to his great credit, turned it around and won it four. But you have to wonder. You know, Agassi at that stage, who was in this race for number one with Sampras for number one in the world and had won the Australian and was very confident, that that's a match that probably he should have won. It, it's funny how tennis, how that happens. And I think that, that both Becker and Agassi would probably agree with that assessment. No, absolutely. Life and sport, you know, this is a very weird way of evening things out. And, you know, we can leave right. it to that. They both, you know, got their moment. So. Yep. So l- let's wrap the other men who won in the 80s before we bring in Martina Navratilova and Steffi Graf and, you know, and the women. Pat Cash was a very fascinating win. Again, his career was cut short by uh, a back injury. But I've seen a Pat Cash story of a VHS you know, in India uh, after he had won. And this guy could r- literally rally at the net. As a kid, that's how I consume. He was so good at the net. Do you think he squeezed that? Was he just good enough for one Wimbledon? Do you think if his career wasn't compromised... He could have been. It could have been a trifecta between him, Becker, and Edward. Because after '88, he wasn't the same guy. No, I think I. I thought at the time it would be. I was so impressed with the way he played. Not only that final against Lendl, who I thought was a little too uh, rigid in his approach and and serving in volley. And he felt like he had to serve in volley every point, which I think was a mistake. I wish he would have mixed it up more. But he and Tony Roach disagreed, and that's how they wanted Yvonne to play. And, Cash exploited it and volleyed beautifully, and then he played a great semi against Connors too. And he likes to believe that the draw was great for him. I've heard him; he said that to me recently. But I just think he was a great grass court player, you know. And we saw him get to the finals on the grass in Australia too, and uh, finals of the Australian Open '87, and losing to Edberg. And I, I and he, then he lost it on hard courts as well. I to Mats, but I thought. Surely he would be contending for more. I just think his body didn't hold up well enough physically. I think he, I think he had the game, he had the mindset, he had the ambition, but his body didn't cooperate. I, w- I, w- I would have seen more of a three-way struggle, a fight for supremacy, the way you described, and would have seen it. Would have been fascinating to watch him play uh, Edberg and Becker, and I think he would have done, he would have held his own with both had his, had he physically been capable of doing so. And uh, Stefan Edberg was, uh, again, uh, the last man to win in the 80s. Of course, Boris Becker won the last one, 89, but he had won earlier. So his rise, again, is, again, classic servant volley tennis. I mean, you've seen a lot of throwback players. Where do you rank him in terms of, you know, just uh, tennis eye candy? I mean, the way this guy was playing tennis, servant volley, you know, great backhand, fluent technique. Of course, his baseline game from the forehand side had a lot, lot to be desired because he was a classic servant volleyer. So where would you put him in a classic tennis player mode? Because his volley technique still gets talked about. A lot of people say it's the best they have seen. What are your recollections of covering Edberg at the championships? Well, that stands out for me, what you just said. I would say, in fairness, about the forehand, yes, the forehand was flawed. It was pretty hard to exploit that, particularly on a grass court. And he could hit some return winners, and he could cover it up well. And then his backhand kind of more than compensated for the vulnerability of the forehand because the backhand was so natural. And he'd hit winners galore. And yes, up at the net, the, the, the package of the forehand backhand volley, probably we haven't seen anything better. I think the backhand volley was outstanding. 
Some people think Tony Roach had the best backhand volley of all time. Others would throw Rosewells in there, but Edberg, Edberg is right. You, you can't say anybody's was better than his. So, yes, he was a quintessential grass court player and made the most of those chances. And it's so commendable to me that he took two out of three from Boris, particularly winning that last one in 90, because the, the, the stats would tell you just the opposite, that Becker would surely have won two of the three himself, possibly all three, but definitely two of three. And Stefan managed to do that despite a, a decisive losing record against this great rival of his. But he was a beautiful player to watch on grass. You know, he had that very thin, slender physique, physique which helped him. He moved so beautifully and got down to the low ball so well. And, of course, the greatest ingredient he had was the capacity to get in so fast behind his serve. Didn't mind if he got called for footfalls here and there because he wanted to be on top of that net. And he thought that even a couple of extra inches that he would gain from possibly footballing was worth the penalty. And uh, there were, nobody could get in quicker for the first volley than Edberg. And, and they were like a couple of tie breaks away for Becker, Edberg, the fourth act, had Michael Street, you know, didn't win all these tiebreakers because 91. Yeah, you said it. You said it. All tiebreakers. Poor Edberg never lost his serve in that match. He won the first set and then lost three tiebreaks and... Never lost his serve in four sets. He said that's never happened to him. And he felt like he was playing the best grass court tennis of his career, and he'd won at Queens. And he was really, as he looks back on that now, that's that's one of the most disappointing losses he suffered because I think he would have loved to have had one more crack at Boris. And, boy, the way he was playing that year, he might have been the favorite going into that match. And uh, we have to mention Ivan Lendl. Every time you and I get together, no matter what, we talk Lendl. Because I, I, I make you talk, Lendl. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Yeah. So Lendl easily, in that generation, is the best player. And he doesn't win Wimbledon. His record stands out. He won, what, 47, 48 matches, five semis, two finals. What was his best chance? I think it was 89 semis, even though he played two finals against Becker and Cash. I think in the 89 semis, the rain didn't happen when Lendl was up 3-0. Uh, who knows? He could have won Wimbledon. Of course, Edberg is no slouch in the finals. And Edberg did beat him in the 90 semis. But what is your recollection of that match? Because that was a very painful match for me as a young boy to watch. Two of my favorites going head-to-head, and I knew how badly Lendl wanted. I couldn't take a side in that match. But do you think, do you think that match was Lendl's best match at Wimbledon? Yeah, I, I think you sized it up all really well. I mean, it, Lendl also had a win over Edberg in the Wimbledon semis, too. So it was kind of a pick-a-match if he had met him in the finals. But, I, you know, I, I do think he would have had a very good chance and that coming off a win over Becker would have been very, uh, would, would have ignited him. It would have been very uplifting. And uh, I agree, the rain just killed him and he was, he was out playing Boris and it was, it, was, it was a very, it was a devastating defeat. And that's probably as well as he's ever played on grass the, to build the lead against Becker in the semi. So I agree with that assessment. And I think... His chances against Edberg in the final would have been just about 50-50. I might have made a 51-49 Lendl going in because of the confidence he would have gained from beating Becker. So that was a that was a golden opportunity lost. I also thought he should have done made it much more competitive against Cash in 87. I didn't like the way he played that match. As I mentioned a, a while ago, he just was very rigid and felt like he had to come in behind every first and second serve. And, and on his returns, he wouldn't stop going for the heavy topspin, but that was really, he wasn't able to make that dip, and that cash was just set up to put away his first volleys, and I thought Yvonne should have chipped more and made him work a little harder at the net, and he didn't. So Yeah, especially 5-2 in the third. I mean, Lendl should have taken it to four. Who knows what would have happened. 
Oh, of course, yeah. of course. But the tiebreaker in the first hurt. There were a lot of things that hurt, but I just think his whole approach to that match was, was I guess, come, keep coming back to rigid. I would have liked to have seen him be a little more experimental and a little more flexible in his approach. And But I do say, I, what I share with you is a great admiration for Lendl and his professionalism. And I'm sorry, as I was for Rosewall, I feel like Yvonne should have had a Wimbledon title on his record. And I'm sorry that it didn't happen. And he tried so hard peak there and to overcome whatever deficiencies he had on the grass and he would have been much happier on the grass the way it plays these days i'm sure he sees that and and it makes him very uh, nostalgic and he probably thinks oh if only i could have played on this this grass the way it's playing now the slower grass would have suited me more and it would have and i also think what he would have then done is definitely not served and volleyed as much as he did because he was not a natural servant volleyer he didn't like doing it on other surfaces. And on the slower grass these days, Yvonne could have approached things very differently. Yeah, I mean, the Lendl the, uh, years were also, I think there was like trial and tribulations, like how he's playing some of these early week matches. I remember Paolo Cane, five-setter at 87, then a couple of battles against uh, Dutchman Michael Shapers, if I'm saying the name right, and Mark Woodford in 88. So it was not lacking drama. I mean, Lendl's run at Wimbledon yeah. were like phenomenal. And, uh, oh, no. No, and how about that 86 semifinal yeah. against uh, Givoyinovich? You know, five five set semi, and it was it was hair raising all the way for him before he finally got him in five. And so it wasn't as if he couldn't get tested by players who wouldn't have done so in, on other surfaces. But he was so, he, he worked his way through those matches. He was he competed well, and then he got himself up for the bigger players. But it's too bad. It's too bad it never came off for him because. He gave it every, everything he had, physically and emotionally. It's funny and very fitting, actually, more than funny, that you bring up Slobodan Zivajinovic. And uh, how was this guy? Again, you know, the way it seemed when he made the 86 semis that he would have a say with Boris Becker. But again, his career was cut short. Then he had to serve in the army. Was he one of those freak talents, like a Roscoe Tanner of the 80s? Is that a fair comparison? I mean, uh, if, you, if I even go there... I don't think it's a fair comparison because only because I think Roscoe had a number of years of top flight tennis. And, you know, the same year that Roscoe took Borg in 79 to five sets in that Wimbledon final and it looked like he was going to win. Uh, he also got to the beat Borg at the open and got to the semis and had Gary Lydis down two sets to love and lost the match. So he could have well have been in both finals. And Roscoe had a lot, a lot of good seasons. 76 Wimbledon, he beat Jimmy Connors and. Uh, you know, he, he got to the semis. And so he he had some he had a number of impressive seasons. Slobodan was he he looked like a boxer. He was a great, big, burly guy. And to his to, the amazing thing about it, to, not to overuse the phrase to his credit, but not only did he make that semi and lose to Lendl in five the next year, he was in the quarters. So and he lost to Connors. So he, he was terrific on the grass and he had a big serve and a big game. And and uh, but I'd, I'd say Tanner was much more cut out for the long run and had, had an awful lot of good years there in in this in the 70s into the big early 80s. Uh, and was wasn't Zivojinovic a mentor of Goran Ivanisevic, if I remember correctly, because I remember him and Becker were like buddies. They played doubles together and the young Goran was up and coming. Yeah, I believe so. I believe there was a connection. He's a very appealing guy, dark hair. And he just, he, as I say, he looked like he could have been a boxer, He's a big guy. Very imposing, and and uh, I'm sure it was intimidating for any of these guys to play him on grass. Not to mention, he just 
kept coming forward and he was he, he, he was really relentless in his attack and so you didn't get much rhythm against him. And any of the moments in the 80s press room that, that stayed with you from the Becker years or the Mac years on the men's side, I'm sure the Peter Duhan upset is, you know, what we've spoken about, but is there, is there anything else that stood out that you remember exactly what you were doing? Well, I no, not so much in the press room. I remember, I, I tend that the, the memories that linger are much more about the matches themselves. And you mentioned, we didn't talk about Duhan that much. Just a brief comment on that was that, here was this guy, you know, as a journeyman, is and uh, you know we're talking about someone that Boris had beaten at Queens that I thought he he figured it going out there it was a routine match and he loses in four sets and that was a shocker because at that stage Boris is going for three in a row and I just think perhaps he took it a bit lightly and Duhan was a solid servant volleyer nothing spectacular in his game nothing that Boris especially having beaten him at Queens shouldn't have been prepared for so that I remember that being a shocker but I don't remember any particular moments from the press room at that time surrounding it. Okay, so we covered quite a lot here in 70s, 80s, a lot of men, some women's tennis. Let's talk about Martina Navratilova. I think, in my view, no Wimbledon conversation is complete uh, without Navratilova. How, how do you even measure her impact on these championships? And let me put like a couple of layers in this question. Was she one of the most natural grass court players? At least, I think so, but again, you saw the evolution. Was she always this attacking? And... Uh, Secondly, what's her overall impact? Uh, I mean, we talk about Lendl. I think it's clearly Martina also changed something, how Wimbledon was played on the women's side. That's how at least I consumed it, you know, by reading about it and then seeing her post-87. But what what is your uh, view on that? Well, I think she was, you know, I, I, as far as how much she changed the way it was played, I don't I just think she brought a level of athleticism and working in the gym and doing so many other things to make herself great on the surface. But she was just, you know, being great lefty servant. I think it was a great advantage for her, just as it has been for Nadal, to be a lefty. And she really she really picked these players apart with her wide serve in the ad court and coming in the classic wide serve in the, to the backhand and then closing in for the backhand volley cross-court winner. And again, her backhand volley is right up there among the great women's backhand volleys of all time up there with Billie Jean King and, and Yvonne Gulagan, maybe just maybe a notch below them, but close. And Mar- but Martina was just so strong. And yes, she was she was made for the surface all, all, almost as good indoors because she she uh, came forward incessantly and she volleyed. She and she had some problems early earlier in her career up up until, say, 81, 82. It improved a lot after that with the low forehand volley. She would miss a lot of them. It cost her the U.S. Open final in 81 against Tracy Austin, but that she even fixed that minor weakness. Her backhand volley was impeccable. Great overhead, great serve, and, and uh, very, improved her backhand ground stroke a lot. She was a, she was a pretty complete player, Martina, and a phenomenal athlete. So, I mean, in many ways, it kind of started and ended for her there at Wimbledon because she won her first major there in 78, her last one, which was her your ninth title, record ninth women's title. She got that in 1990. So what a run she had in that span and five finals over Chris Everett, who was her greatest rival, but she beat the likes of Manlikova and Steffi Graf, who were great on the surface. She's, she's to me, I, I'd have to say more than Serena. She's certainly the greatest woman grass court player of all time. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a candidate right there. And a lot of folks believe her doubles prowess. She may be 
overall tennis goat again if there's such a thing you know it, it's 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 good stuff for you know creating these discussions so well you know what i just interject quickly on that sagi but uh you one time at the us open i was passing her in the hallway and she must have seen i must have been on some show i think on tennis channel where i had said that i thought steffi graf was the greatest woman player of all time and she was very directly came up to me and said steve i think you got that wrong i think i am and she told me you know but we didn't get a chance to follow up because she was going one way, I was going another. We have followed up since. Her attitude is a little different now in the sense that she believes that you can't necessarily say who's the greatest of all time. She's happy to be part of the conversation, you know, along with Steffi and Chrissy and others and Serena, obviously. Uh, but I do think, in my view, I think you do separate the singles from the doubles. I don't, I'm not... I mean, again, if you did count doubles, Billie Jean King would be a lot higher on the ladder of history for sure, winning 27 majors combined in women's and mixed doubles. And Martina, for sure, you know, wins her last. She's almost 50 years old when she won her last major with Bob Bryan at the U.S. Open, which was astounding in 06. So I, I have nothing but the highest admiration for her. And I no doubt that her best work was done at Wimbledon. And that was her favorite court. And that was the one that suited her game to the hilt. Uh, of course, a rivalry with Chris Everett and matches with Steffi Graf are legendary. So, Hada Mandlikova, if I'm saying the name right, that was another player who me and Murd and others have talked about and who could have been a very, you know, deserving Wimbledon champion. How did you see her game and you think is she one of the better players not to one have Wimbledon in the 80s? Oh, no, no doubt about that. She wasn't, she was nervous when she played Chris Everett in the 1981 final. And lost it two and two. You know, she was never really in that match. And she just, she was, she was way too tight. So that could have ended up being a, a pretty tough match. And then Navratilova beat her after that. And she didn't have the, the good fortune that she would at the U.S. Open and the French and Australia. She won all the others. Yes, she was a complete all, she had every shot in the book, maybe to her detriment. I remember her coach, Betty Stover from the Netherlands, who was the 1977 Wimbledon finalist of losing to Virginia Wade. Betty would say, that Hannah was, it was kind of like a Baskin Robbins where you had 28 flavors. She would have 28 shots. She just wouldn't always choose the right shot. The shot selection, the mental processing, sometimes she could make bad choices, but she had everything in her game. Great touch up at the net. She had explosive power from the back, beautiful serve. She had it all. So it, it's no accident that she won all the others and she won the Australian on grass, beat Martina to win that. So it's not as if she didn't have the grass court skills and when beat Martina to win the U.S. Open in 1985, beat Chris Everett as well on the hard courts. That was probably her greatest major. But I think it's too bad in a way. I wish, again, that she would be on that Wimbledon champions list, would have been, because she uh, somehow it would be befitting to me that Manlikova would have all four majors in her collection. Still a great career and still some great Wimbledon performances. Sure. So another barstool question for you, and I know you won't dodge it. So, like we did for Becker and Mac, Chrissy Everett and Jimmy Connors, uh, two Wimbledon, so three for Chrissy, two for Jimmy. You think Chrissy should have won more? Who should have won more out of the two? Let's put it this way, make it interesting, given the competition they had. <laughs> yeah, they both should have. They both should have won a few more. I already, I already sort of weighed in on Jimmy, and I think that somehow at least three, probably four, and I think in in Chrissy's case, probably five. But I think the problem was that Martina, you know. Sometimes Martina mentally could be a little fragile, but she never, you know, but she got tougher and tougher in that department. And so if 
you, if, uh, looking at the five finals against Martina, the one that Christie should have won was 78, the first one, because she had her 4-2 in the third. I thought at that stage, Martina wasn't sure. She was just she was just growing into that talent and hoping she was good enough to win that day, and maybe believing it, but vulnerable. And Christie won the first set 6-2 and eventually had 4-2 in the third and lost 7-5. That one was very winnable. And 85 was another winnable match where she won the first set and lost in three because she'd come off beating Martina at the French. I would say she should have come away with five. Connor should have come away from four, come away with four. So let's call it even. No, that's that's nicely put. And you have a lot of context backing this uh, historical data when these players should have won or had their best chances. Uh, so let's talk about Steffi Graf. Before the Roger Federer slice for this generation, there was Steffi Graf backhand slice. And, of course, her forehand was really good. How, how do you consume her game? Uh, for me, you know, as a young fan, I thought Martina is the way, like, Becker or McIndoe, you should be playing serve and volley. But Steffi Graf chained that. She seldom came to net. She won, you know, a lot of Wimbledons. So summarize her association at Wimbledon and how you saw the forehand and the slice. Well... Forehand, I think, was probably the greatest forehand we've ever seen in the women's game. And she did such a great job of getting around her backhand. That's not that she was a, she loved using that backhand slice, as you just noted. But she wanted to to the, the way the way we've the way we saw players doing you know, post Lendl and the way that's so common now to hit inside out forehands. And if there was time to get around and explode for a winner. So Steffi was was fearsome off the forehand side and combined it with that biting backhand slice. And that's what made it so great. The bite on that slice, which Federer has been able to do beautifully at times as well. But it was a really uh, crucial. The combination was almost irresistible. Some people criticized her maybe if she'd had to play more servant volleyers like Navratilova and they had a pretty even career series. Maybe then she would have spent more time working on the topspin backhand pass. She was never that confident with that shot. But most of the players that she was confronting really were not, they weren't serving volleyers. They weren't attackers. So there was really no need for her to change that recipe of the slice back and combined with a big inside out forward. And the other thing we have to say about her, a very underrated first serve, great first serve that served her extraordinarily well over the years. So Steffi won Wimbledon seven times. And that was, uh, you know, that was really her, her, her greatest major. Absolutely. And uh, let's switch to 90s. And Steffi again, uh, with Pete Sampras on the men's side and Steffi on the women, dominated Wimbledon. Let's talk about the Laurie McNeil loss. Uh, that's, I believe, happened in 1990 and that, uh, in a way, opened the door uh, you know, for Martina, who had lost the previous two finals uh, uh, to Steffi Graf. So how big was that loss? And uh, let's talk about you know, the unexpected nature of it and uh, also uh, give some anecdotes on Laurie McNeil, if you can. Well, you know what? It was actually 94. 94, Steffi had actually was going for four in a row. She'd won 91, two, and three. And Laurie played her in the first round. And Laurie was ranked 22 in the world. But in those days, we had 16 seats. That was pre-32 seats. You know, at a certain time later, you know, 10 years later, a little bit more beyond that, then she would have been seated. So it was a little bit of an unlucky draw for Steffi, who had lost to her a couple of years earlier. Lori was dangerous on fast courts, and she beat Steffi five and six. It was kind of a shocker. And uh, Lori ended up going all the way to the semis, and she lost 10-8 in the third to Conchita Martinez. So she, was, she, she proved that that win was not freakish or, or a fluke. And she also had beaten Chris Everett in the 
in the in the U.S. Open was a shocker in 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 1987 in the quarters. She beat Chrissy in three and then lost to Steffi in three. And in that match against Steffi at the Open, that was the famous match where the match carried over into the national news. And Dan Rather was in the studio wanting to do the news. And they, they cut into the news for about seven minutes. And he was furious. He walked out of the studio. He's very angry that they decided to cover the tennis and break into his national news. So that's my favorite, Lori McNeil. But she was very quiet, self-effacing, terrific athlete, came in at all costs. And uh, she just was not quite consistent enough in, in, in over the years to quite pull it off beyond getting to that Wimbledon semi and getting to the semis of the U.S. Open. But Lori was a beautiful player to watch. And she put Steffi under a lot of pressure in that 94 first round match. Yeah, that was a big unforced error on my part. I guess I wanted to. Oh, no, 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 it, it is. Worry. Yeah, I mean, I should, I, it just makes the dates. Yeah, so Steffi losing to Zena Garrison in 90 was a different match. Uh, right, yeah. right. That's right. Zena that year. Zena that year also beat Monica Seles. That was a great run for Zena. But then Martina was just too good for her that day. Too bad it would have been that would have been an astonishing trifecta if she knocks off Seles, Graf, and Navratilova. Couldn't pull off the third one, but still a great run for Zena. Yeah, I think the only reason there's no reason actually to mix uh, that match with the '90 matches. Uh, I always compared the Laurie McNeil match to the Peter Duhan upset. So I think those were the two biggest upsets I remember. Uh, in, from you know those ten, eleven years of following Wimbledon uh, as a young yeah. student, so so yeah, I mean so we've covered Steffi Graf, and then uh, Gabriela Sabatini has to be part in the mix, you know, serving for the Wimbledon Championship twice and not winning it. Uh, I mean, her her game was, I think, very modern. I think the way she hit the topspin forehand and backhand, I think that was uh, very reminiscent of uh, today's player. Uh, do you see her as a that, that was just like one missed opportunity, or do you have same regrets for her as you did for Hannah Mandlikova that Sabatini should have won at least one Wimbledon? Well, not I, she should have won that match for sure. I don't feel quite the same way I do about Mandlikova and a few of the other men we talked about who you felt like had many chances. Gabby though had beaten Steffi in the '90 U.S. Open final by and coming to the net a lot. So in addition to the topspin, she chipped and charged and got in and showed great hands at the net and sort of threw Steffi out of her rhythm. And she she did some nice attacking on the Wimbledon grass in '91, served for the match twice, as you said, and should have closed it. Great competitive resilience from Graf, but a wasted opportunity from Sabatini. But Never felt any other year that she was really going to do it. It would have been a nice moment, though, for sure. And she would have been a, an immensely popular champion, as she was at the 90 Open. Would have also, you know, rounded out her record to have that second major. Would have been a bit like Andy Roddick. It would have been so nice for Roddick to beat Federer in the 09 final and add that to his U.S. Open triumph from 2003. And it would have really added a lot of weight to his record. That's how I felt about Sabatini losing in a in a magnificent final to graph in 91 no, no i'm here yeah sorry uh so the uh, uh, there are other women that also were victorious in the 90s and conchita martinez uh, names comes uh, to mind and i clearly recall some of the best passing shots in display and martina net rushing and that was a uh, that was an iconic match uh, and not to use it word loosely because that was the last time navratilova played a wimbledon final so how how, how surprising was that of uh, that moment, and then uh, her more seasoned uh, uh, compatriot Arancha Sanchez could not get over the hump, and she played a couple of memorable finals with Graf. So, if you want to compare the two women at Wimbledon, 
Conchita sneaking that win out against Martina and Arancha falling short. Yeah, Arancha was going to be a harder task for her, I think. Martina was 37 and past her prime, and it would have been a, a, a wonderful sort of uh, to get to double digits and make it 10. And, and a lot of people thought she had Billie Jean in her corner at that time, and Craig Carden was a very fine coach. And a lot of people thought, you know, going in, the Martina's grass court experience would carry the day. But you just alluded to the crucial factor and the, the, the determining factor. The backhand passing shots of Martinez were just spectacular. And Martina would, did the right thing by continuously attacking that side and chipping the backhand approach, which was one of the great backhand approach shots we've ever seen in the women's game. But Martinez just came up with one glorious backhand pass after another. And that, in the end, was what won her that match. So as for Arancha, she did have her chance in the 95 final against Graf, where they had this 13-deuce game near the end at 5-all in the third, you know, 13 deuces. And finally, Steffi won that game and closed it out 7-5. If Arancha would have won the marathon game, perhaps she could have had her Wimbledon title. And she had beaten Steffi in the 94 U.S. Open final. So you have to say, I mean, she was very competitive with Steffi in those days. The next year, Steffi was just way too good in beating Arancha. For the, for the crown. 95 was Arancha's chance, but she she wasn't quite good enough to pull it off. It was a great final, though. Uh, let's talk also talk about Jana Novotna and her, you know, Wimbledon finals. Uh, again, one of the most sentimental choices for obvious reasons, but again, a very good serve and volleyer. Uh, and I think her game was also pretty much uh, made for the grass coats. So... Well, your views on her Wimbledon in the 90s and how she measured up against some of the best players. Yana, we're talking about Yana Novotna now, right? Yes. Yes. Yana lost the heartbreaker to Steffi Graf there in 93. And, you know, she had, she'd been up two breaks in the third, 4-1. It looked like you know, she won 10 out of 12 games to get there. She was just rolling, and she was beating Steffi with her great skills at the net one of the one of one of the great forehand volleys of all time and a darn good for uh, uh, backhand volley as well terrific overhead fine serve and she was playing the game on her terms and she choked and she didn't want to admit that after the match but we all saw it that way so it was so nice that in 98 everything opened up she won the tournament very worthy wimbledon winner because she played the you know she was sort of a throwback to the old playing style the attacking players while at this point, you know, she was surrounded by people like Martina Hingis. And then the Williams sisters were coming along then, too, with a whole different style based on power and, and, and largely from the baseline. And here was Yana was a bit more like the old fashioned servant volleyers and real elegance to her game. So it was so nice to see her win that Wimbledon. I think we all thought she she deserved it. And absolutely. Uh... You know, there are, there are some stories that deserved a fitting end, and that was that was one of it. Uh, same as Goran Ivnisevic in 2001. But we are only covering till 90s. So let's talk about the men uh, that the decade belonged to. Uh, Michael Steek, Stefan Edberg, Andre Agassi, uh, and Richard Trichik all won titles, but 60% of the title in, in the 90s was won by Pete Sampras, and arguably the greatest basketball player, according to many. Of course, Roger Federer has a very good case to make. Uh, himself, but let's stay with Sampras, and you also have a book coming up on Sampras. So let's talk about the Sampras years. I mean, he his serve looked unbreakable. 
I mean, a lot of time in recency bias, we lose perspective of how good someone was. And you briefly mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast with these these three glorious players uh, with all-round games. And, you know, they've won all four majors. And that, in a way, does shortchange Sampras' uh, you know, resume compared to them. But Sampras was a force like none other uh, if we are living in the 90s. And it was very hard to fathom that not only one, but three three guys will break his record. So sometimes life is cruel in that way. <laughs> Absolutely. But like, what, 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 where, where's our focus now? You want to talk about any particular year of Pete's or just the dominance? Uh, let, let's start about the first few years when he barely won a match. And then in 92, I think he played a four set against Todd Woodbridge. And then he loses to Ivan Isevich. And that was just like reaffirmation to many pundits and fans that he has the goods. Because up till then, he didn't really win much at Wimbledon. So what changed when you talk to him? Uh, and you've, I'm sure you covered uh, him uh, frequently and you've spoken to him. So what changed in that match? Is the Woodbridge match the match something he also talks about? No, no, he talks about, I mean, he was disapp- the, the main thing about 92 was he beat Steak in the quarters and he played brilliantly and so well that a lot of us thought he's going to win this title. Then what happened is that Agassi and McEnroe was a lot of rain that week. You'd already alluded to it with Becker and Becker playing against Agassi, but the rain put them way behind schedule. So they actually had to play the two semis simultaneously on center and and one. Sampras got stuck on court one against Goran and won the first set in a tiebreak, lost the second set, and then got pretty down on himself. The last two sets went by pretty quickly. So, and then it it kind of, the pattern was somewhat similar. He was disappointed to lose to Edberg in the U.S. Open final that year after winning the first set there. But, but he was, that was the process. At that stage, he was still a little psyched out by Goran's serve. Now, of course, after that, he ends up beating Goran in the 94 final, the 95 semifinal, and the 98 final. So he more than made up for that loss in 92, but it was a little bit daunting to him. He was a little bit shell-shocked by how dealing with that left-handed serve and how he's going to break him in so many aces. And, of course, the people around him, as as as, as Tom Gullickson told me for in, in the upcoming book, uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited, he said, you know, that, that Tim, his brother, who was coaching Pete, tried to say, look, you know, how do you think people feel when they play you? You know, you're acing them all the time. What do you, you know, you got you got to come to terms with this, which he did. Which he did, but it was never easy playing Gorn by any means. And the 98 final was harrowing, which he won in five. We can talk more about that. But I do think that he showed in 92 that he was on the cusp of it. Yes, he lost to Gorn, but had he played Agassi in the final, he would have had a great chance to beat him. And then in 93, he does win it, beating Agassi, who was the defending champion, in a five-set, five-setter. And then he went on and knocked off Becker. And then he win, and then he wins the, the the title over Jim Courier. So that was quite a quite a trio to to take down for his first crown at Wimbledon, and that just really set him, got him rolling. Beat Ivanisevich in straight sets in the next year's final, and then won the final from Becker in four in '95. And then, as you know, he lost to Krychek in the quarters in '96, but came right back and won it in, in from '97 through 2000. So he won. Had a streak of three in a row, lost one year, and then won four in a row. So seven out of eight years, from '93 to 2000, he was the Wimbledon champion. But as you mentioned to me in conversationally earlier, the standout match in a lot of ways, and probably the most gritty performance that uh, of his Wimbledon career, I think, was the five-set win over Ivanisevic in the '98 final. Because Goran was really primed for it. He lost one final to Agassi at that stage, and one to 
Sampras, and he thought maybe it would be third time lucky. And Sampras was down a set and down two set points in the second set tiebreak and down to a second serve on each of those set points, but he got out of it. Gorin missed the backhand returns in each case, and Pete came back, won that set, and eventually won it 6-2 in the fifth. And I think that was that was a shining competitive performance of him because of all the Wimbledon finals, that that may have been the toughest. You know, I'd, I'd rate it even tougher than the Rafter final in 2000. No, I think I, I'm on the same side as you. Not that, you know, you need any validation from what I'm saying, but I think at the 98 final, in a lot of ways, I thought that was a chance for Ivan Isavit because, you know, he had beaten Krajicek in an epic semifinal, and then he had you know heartbreaks in '96 and '97, losing to Stoltenberg, uh, and then you know you, you thought Wimbledon was his destiny, and you also think that Sampras would falter once, but Sampras just saved, I think, the goods when it mattered most, and that's why in that era it was hard to imagine someone playing bigger points better than Sampras, and now we have you know Djokovic, who you know who have who, who's redefined that category, but uh, uh, to keep recency bias out of it. How big was Sampras as a big match player? Well, it, it's a little different from, from... He was consistently, once he got to the top, impenetrable, I think. And, and I, I don't think he ever really choked. And, and not, no knock on, on Novak, because I think Djokovic has, has been one, a, just a, an extraordinary pressure player, as he's shown so many times, most notably in that Wimbledon final last year when he... Had when Federer served for the match at eight seven in the fifth and had couple two match points forty fifteen and 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 for the third time in his career he beat Federer from double match point down. I mean, how many people can say that? And then we could list so many other great clutch efforts from from Novak. But I think the difference is that Novak has also had these vulnerable moments uh, where he's gotten you know either physically he's been down on himself or mentally he's. He wasn't up to par, and you, we could look at different stages of his career where he wasn't able. Pete has reached, Sampras reached a level of competitive equilibrium at a certain stage of his career, I'd say from 93 on, where he just was not going to give you any. You, you, you were going to have to beat him, and in the tight situations, you definitely were going to have to come up with the goods because you weren't going to get any help from him. He was just going to keep bearing down on you. And I think that even Isovich match in 98 sort of symbolized how tough he was under pressure. Now, I will say, though, quickly, that he did feel, he's told me for the book that he felt, you know, a little sheepish afterwards. He felt like Gorn had outplayed him in many ways, and he felt a bit lucky to get through it. But, of course, that's also modesty, because you don't, it, it doesn't happen totally by accident. You have to be there in, in the trenches at, 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 the, at the consequential moments like he was and be unyielding and and that's that's what he was he basically was saying to Gorin on the set points in the second set okay I'm I'm serving and volleying like always you come up with a back end return winner too good but Gorin could not come up with it and eventually Pete wins it 6-2 in the fifth and I think the one Wimbledon where he really he also was very candid in press in 99 was it against Philippoussis when he pretty much got out of jail when Philippoussis hurt himself a lot of tennis was to be played but I think Philippoussis was playing you know the way everybody expected him for years. And I think that's the match. Sampras was also, I think, pretty candid and pressed later on. Well, he was. He, he, that, the, but we talked about that in the book, too. The thing about that Philippus match in 99, it was just a set. It was only down a set, and they were on serve in the second set. So he wasn't yet in great danger. There, and so it would have depended a lot on how that second set came out. And we'll never know, because poor Mark came up lame. But 
remarkable thing about that is that he then played well enough to beat Henman in a four-set semi. Didn't play great, but well enough. And then played maybe the career-defining match against Agassi, three, four, and five in that 95 final. Maybe the best match he's ever played. So he went from the scare against Philippoussis to he just completely put it behind him, never looked back, and 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 improved against Henman, but really skyrocketed in that final against Agassi and and uh, beat him with an impeccable performance. I think that's a perfect note to end this podcast. I know I bargained for an hour. We already an hour, 20 minutes. So, Steve, I think we covered a lot as expected, 70s, 80s, 90s. And there's a reason we're not going into 2000s and the current, because everybody knows the Federer, uh, Serena, Novak, Rafa, and I'm sure a lot of conversations are going for those guys. And uh, we'll try to, you know, talk about them at a different stage. But I think the goal for today's podcast was reliving, you know, a typical throwback Thursday, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, no better ending than Pete Sampras, you know, punctuating his, uh, you know, his trademark game on the lawns of Wimbledon. And I really thank you for joining me on this. It was very educational, a lot of fun, as always. And I'm sure the, the listeners who tune in uh, will want to go back and look at some of those YouTube footage of all the matches that you mentioned. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's always it's always a great pleasure to talk tennis with you because you know your stuff and and uh, I, I the time went by very quickly for me. Well, uh, it's it's a compliment I don't take lightly, you know, coming from you. But even though I uh, missed the dates on Laurie McNeil, I mean, I guess uh, I'm allowed to make a mistake. <laughs> uh, don't be hard on yourself. It's not not important. But thanks again for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> 